The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 3 of Students of Mind, the podcast that's all about opening up and normalizing discussions about mental health in ways that anyone can comprehend. In the first two seasons, we sat down with mental health experts and survivors to give you a full circle picture of each topic. In this new season, we will continue to explore the world of mental health through the insights of experts, healers, and individuals with lived experience. From alternative healing modalities to living with multiple illnesses, this season we will cover a wide range of topics with the help of a diverse selection of guests. My name is Jade, and for today's episode, I sit down with Phoebe Bell to get a look at the new implementation of 988, the new mental health crisis hotline. I also sit down with Dylan Garatna to talk about what it's like working as a crisis line counselor. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's first guest is Phoebe Bell. Phoebe is the Director of Behavioral Health for Nevada County in California. Previously, Phoebe has worked for several mental health and family support nonprofit organizations, and she now oversees the mental health and substance use disorder services in Nevada County. Welcome, Phoebe. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the topic of today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. I am the Director of Behavioral Health for Nevada County, which um, for any listeners that don't know is a small rural county in sort of the Sierra foothills and up and over into the Truckee area here in California. And we provide 
provide mental health and substance use disorder services to folks in our county who are on Medi-Cal um, and on the mental health side who have more significant mental illness and then to anyone on the substance use treatment side. Great. So today we, um, I wanted to talk to you about what to do when there's a mental health crisis. Um, I know this year the 988 number was announced um, and I think that that has brought up a lot of mixed emotions for people so I'm excited to get into that with you but first can we just talk about um, like what is a mental health crisis yeah it's a it's a big question actually yeah. and, and a little bit of a hard question um, you know I think once upon a time when we set up kind of mental health crisis resources the predominant situation we were trying to solve for was somebody who is feeling really um, deep and dark and depressed and suicidal, essentially. And so a lot of resources are geared around um, supporting somebody in a moment of feeling suicidal and how can we help keep that person safe. Um, but mental health crises can take a lot of forms and they can certainly be that, somebody who's um, at risk of hurting themselves. They can be somebody that's um, really actively psychotic or, or kind of working with a lot of stimuli that are um, keeping them a little bit disconnected from reality and maybe causing them to act in ways that are alarming to other people or are potentially getting themselves into dangerous situations or getting themselves into trouble. Um, it can be people under the influence of substances and acting erratically or unsafely or whatever. It can be something who's, somebody who's really a danger of hurting somebody else. They're really angry or really paranoid. And, and I think people can go into crisis where they've sort of lost control of um, making good decisions about their well-being for lots of reasons. It can be because of a serious mental illness and, and again, psychosis and, and not, you know, responding to uh, um, confused or different sense of reality. But it can also be, like I said, because of stressors outside of themselves. And so what we expect our crisis system to respond to, I think, is really grown in scope and breadth and, and complexity. Um, and those different scenarios kind of need different solutions sometimes. So I think that's one of the challenges that faces us. Yeah, it definitely so sounds like a, I don't know, there's there's not like a, a template <laughs> or, or a a blueprint for how to deal with the mental health crisis because they look, they can look so different person to person. And I think um, it's the other thing that we all have to remember too, is that when things go sideways for somebody having a crisis, it can, we all know from so many examples in the media, it can get really dangerous really quickly for that person and for others around them, including um, law enforcement, but our, our, kind of traditional system of response for many years now has been to have law enforcement be sort of the first um, line of, of um, intervention. And that that can escalate really quickly and have really, really poor outcomes, um, again, for everybody involved. And I think that's a lot of what's precipitating sort of a broader push to say, wow, we haven't really grown up a crisis response system <laughs> um, in the ways that we should have for, for the challenges that people are facing. And then I think it's also been exacerbated by um, the number of people experiencing homelessness in our country. And therefore, a lot of people's crises are happening in public settings that maybe would have happened behind closed doors. And it's a different set of risks for a community when somebody has lost control in a, 
in a public setting, there's a lot more people that can be impacted and the level of discomfort gets higher and the level of response intensifies. And so I think that's also contributing to sort of why we're more broadly looking at how we do crisis response. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, like let's say someone's having a mental health crisis, what happens when someone calls the police to deal with that situation? So it depends right now a lot on where you are in California or in the country even. Um, There's sort of different resources in different places. But generally speaking, if somebody calls 911 um, and says, you know, I'm having a crisis, I might kill myself, or I'm really angry and I've got a gun or whatever it might be, um, law enforcement will respond. In some places, they respond in conjunction with a mental health professional those are called co-responder teams. And, you know, you have both perspectives there, somebody to, to assure safety and somebody to um, look at psychiatric and behavioral health needs and challenges and resources. In some communities, um, there's already a system in place to sort of have the um, dispatch worker triage a little bit and understand the level of risk and the complexity of what's going on and decide, can I send just a mental health crisis team or do I need a co-responder or just law enforcement response? And that's probably the ideal scenario. And then in some communities, law enforcement is the only option. Um, within those communities, many law enforcement officers at this point have been through pretty extensive training around how to manage mental health crises, how to de-escalate situations, et cetera, um, but not everybody. And so even that response can differ a little depending on what kinds of training that law enforcement officers had. Yeah, so shifting into this 988 number, so this is supposed to be like the 911 for mental health. So so like what can we expect from from this? What can we expect when we call this number and how would it be different from calling 911? Sure. So the vision of 988 is exactly like you said and really a great vision that eventually we will have a robust crisis system that is you know, intertwined with, but separate from law enforcement and separate from hospitals and instead recognizes that behavioral health crises are their own situations and need their own types of response system. And so the vision really is a parallel universe where instead of calling 911, you call 988 instead of, you know, um, a patrol car pulling up, a mobile crisis team pulls up, a mental health professionals. Instead of taking you to the emergency department, you're taken to a place specific for behavioral health crises. That is the ultimate vision, and it's a really great vision. And the reality is we have a little ways to go until we get there. And so in California, we're building the 988 system on top of what was the National Suicide and Prevention Hotline capacity. And so prior to 988 going live, if you called the National Suicide Hotline, um, there's a network of call centers throughout the country that your call would be routed to depending on where you're calling from. So in my county, in Nevada County, if, if you called that number, you would get routed to a call center in Yolo County that answers the phone for about 10 counties. With 988 going live, that call is routed just like it were a suicide prevention hotline call. So it goes to that same call center. Um, so the good news is what will happen is your call will be answered by a trained volunteer who are super skilled at de-escalating somebody who's suicidal or in crisis, um, talking them through that moment, assessing for risk, calling for law enforcement support if needed, and ideally connecting 
the caller with some resources. Um, however, it's again, typically been a suicide prevention hotline. And while they've certainly handled an array of crises, that's really been the focus. And so as we get into some of these other types of crisis situations that can happen or where some kind of in-person response is needed um, in much of California and much of the country, that 988 call center isn't connected in with the local crisis system. And so they're not able yet to dispatch a mobile crisis team or let you know about the crisis stabilization unit down at the hospital and help you figure out how to get down there or whatever it might be. That's sort of a future state thing um, is how to link those call centers, especially the ones that cover big geographic regions to the local crisis system so that they can effectively make that connection or to expand the number of call centers that are answering those calls so that they're a little bit more localized um, so that you're not because I think we've all had that experience, whether it's for a crisis or something much more benign, like a customer service type of thing. And you think you're calling your local store and suddenly you're being answered by somebody in a different geography and the disconnects start happening pretty fast. They don't know your, what's happening in your community or whatever it might be. And so I think that's one of the things we're all struggling with right now is like, how do we um, have that 988 response system link into the rest of our, our local crisis services? But again, the good part is it's super exciting to just have a simple number. Like, honestly, as somebody that works in the field, I'd always have to like look up the National Suicide Hotline number. It wasn't stuck in my head. And 988 obviously is a, very simple to remember and share with people. And that's the most important thing. When somebody's in crisis, that everybody in the country eventually knows, just like a little child knows, call 911 that every person knows you can call 988 and get some help and get some support. That that alone is a, a, an improvement for our system. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think th this kind of just pushes mental health into a space where it's like trying to encourage people to take it more seriously. Um, so I think it's great in, mm -hmm. in that sense. And um yeah, you already mentioned like the pros and the cons of this new number. Um, and I think it sounds like there's a lot of work to do with it. But um, again, even just having it like the message behind it, I feel like is really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that I was talking about with somebody recently that's helpful to remember is, you know, as long as I've been aware, 911 has just been there and you, we all know about it and we all know how it works and it's a seamless system. Um, and they were reminding me that it didn't just start like that. It didn't suddenly magically right. work everywhere all the time exactly how it's supposed to. It took years to build into that system and that's helpful perspective to keep. We are in, you know, the first stage of this massive system transformation around crisis services and it will continue to grow and improve and strengthen over time and be more effective, which is cool. And then definitely to your point, like the really most important thing is really like the focus on the fact that a mental health crisis is a real crisis. And we've underplayed that for so long and we've not taken seriously the struggles people experience and to elevate that right alongside an I'm on one call is so important and helps so much with breaking down some of the stigma around reaching out for help. And that's probably the most important thing that 988 has to offer is, hey, it's no big deal. Just call 988. Somebody's there to talk to you. Um, that's a really lovely thing. Yeah, that's so great. 
Um, so before we wrap up, can you give us some, uh, like, if someone's listening who themselves or has a loved one experiencing a mental health crisis, uh, what are some steps that they can take? I think the most important thing, if you're worried about somebody, is to sit with them and talk to them. I think most people get really anxious about having a hard conversation with somebody that's that they're worried about because they're really scared of asking questions that they're not sure how to handle the answers to. And so most specifically, people get really anxious about saying to somebody, are you feeling suicidal right now? Are you having any thoughts of hurting yourself? Um, those are scary questions to ask because if the person says yes, um, ah, then what? But the reality is it's the most important question to ask. And for people who are feeling that way, there's so much relief in having somebody put it on the table and open the door to that conversation. And just because somebody says they're suicidal doesn't mean you're in a panic. That's when you say, great, I know a resource. Let's call 988. They're going to help us figure out how to get you through this moment. Or if you don't have access to that, call 911. And if you don't have access to that, sit with that person and take them down to the local hospital and get them assessed there. Um, but asking that question is the first step to them connecting into reaching out to help. And the reality is, while we all want professionals to do that in certain ways, the most of us really rely on our natural support networks for love and kindness and support and friendship and caring and asking those questions and connecting to many resources is most likely to happen from that friend, loved one, coworker, whatever it might be more than from a professional. And so that's the most important thing is like, don't be scared to have real conversations with people when you're concerned, when you see things that are worrisome and the worst thing that would happen is it's an awkward conversation when the person's like, what are you talking about? No, I'm just sad because my dog died, but that's normal or whatever the thing is. And you're like, great. So glad to hear that. Hey, let's go for a walk together and tell me more about your dog. Or, you know, I don't mean to make trade of it, but you know what I mean? Like that's the worst thing that could happen is the per that you're totally off base. And then though, now that person knows that you're a safe person to talk to because you're willing to bring up that subject. And if they ever did get to a really hard place, they might be willing to come to you. And people want to know that, like, who is it, who can handle having those conversations and, and being open to hearing about hard moments? Yeah, I love that. I think I just recently took a training on, it was just a suicide prevention training, and it had you practice asking someone if they're thinking about suicide. Mm -hmm. And even being in this space and working in this space, for me, it like brought up some feelings. So... I, I think it's great that you mentioned that it's very important to ask that question, even if it just leads to an awkward <laughs> conversation. It's so important to get that question out there and let that person know that the space is open for that. Yeah, well said. Exactly. So before we wrap up, something uh, I do for all of my guests is, um, so for this season, I want to put an emphasis on self-care because uh, I had a, an experience at the beginning of the year where I had to take time for self-care and I just realized that that's what was missing for me. Um, so my question for you is, what is one thing that you do each day to maintain mental wellness? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to share a couple things, actually, if that's all right. 
Um, so for me, I live in the mountains in a mountain town called Truckee and um, being outside and being in my physical body are a lot of how I take care of myself. My job is so in my head and in my heart. <laughs> and it, to me, balancing that out with time in my body. So hiking, biking, running, and whenever I can do those things with a friend. So I get that connection part as well, that much the better. But um, I try most days to find something like that to do. Um, but I also uh, have been working really hard at more of a gratitude practice. And I just feel like that's one of the most powerful things I've done for myself around reframing um, hard days, et cetera. And um, somebody gave me the acronym of GLAD recently. And so most nights when I'm falling asleep, I think of one thing I'm grateful for, one thing I learned, one thing I accomplished, and one thing that gave me delight, which I love, something delightful. And it's just a really nice way to close out my day. So Great. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I might steal that one. <laughs> All right. Um, That's awesome. So to wrap up, can you give my audience and I some ways to uh, connect with you or stay up to date with the work that you're doing? Well, I'm sort of a um, Luddite in the social media <laughs> universe, so you can't follow me anywhere or anything like that. But you're always welcome to reach out to me at Nevada County Behavioral Health Department. Um, and then I am involved in our state association of behavioral health directors and, um, the California behavioral health directors association is a great organization to follow in terms of understanding kind of what's coming on sort of the policy and new programming ideas, um, kind of on the cutting edge of the public behavioral health system in California. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think this was insightful and I think it will be helpful and interesting for people to hear about this new implementation of the number. So thank you for being here and providing all this information. Uh, thanks so much for having me and for creating the space for these kinds of conversations. It's really great. Today's second guest is Dylan Gunaratna. Dylan is an entertainment professional and law student at Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles, California. In previous years, Dylan spent time volunteering as both a crisis line counselor and hospice worker. In our discussion, Dylan shares with us his experience working as a crisis line worker and what he's learned as a result. Good morning. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm really excited too. I'm, I'm glad we were able to work this out. Um, before we get into the discussion, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. My name is Dylan Gunaratna, pronouns are he, him. Um, currently, I am in law school, but prior to law school, I was a volunteer with the um, D.D. Hirsch's Suicide Prevention Center. And they took, which is in Culver City, California, in LA. And they took um, calls from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They also took calls from the teen line after hours. So with that center, I had experience like receiving or taking calls as a crisis line counselor for different lines. But um, yeah, I was a volunteer for about a year and a half, I think. And then since then, I've just been working in the entertainment industry and then started law school in the last year and a half, almost two years now. Yeah. 
place. I'm excited to talk to you about your time as a crisis line worker today. I think that's so cool that you did that as part of like your journey. Mm -hmm. So can we, let's just dive into it. Can you tell us like what inspired you to become a crisis line worker? I think initially what I wanted to do was I wanted to work and do something in mental health that was more sort of intimate with people. So when I, at the time I was in college, I was at Cal State LA and I was running our National Alliance and Mental Illness NAMI on campus group. <clears throat> so with that, I was doing events on campus and stuff like that. So we got to meet with students and we would do like, we had this one annual event that we did called hashtag stigma free, which was like a nice, which is an event we had like mental health resources for students and things like that and like performances and stuff. And so, but I also wanted to do something a bit more in the community that was just separate to my work with the school. So I think with the crisis line, I don't know, something drew me to it. I just, the idea of being able to connect with someone one-on-one on the phone and be like a very small part of their life for, you know, however many minutes, but be so impactful I think that whole idea just kind of spoke to me. And then when I went to the, um, the timing didn't really work out well with me for some other organizations. And then it, it worked out well with um, Dee Hirsch. And then I was able to go through the training. I met some incredible people that were also volunteering. And, and then I just knew this was right for me and I really wanted to try it. So, yeah. So what was the training process like to become a crisis volunteer? The training process is actually pretty long. They, I think initially you sort of do an app. Obviously, I don't know how it goes with every organization, but with the one I did, they had an initial application where I asked stuff about you. And then you actually go through like, I think it was a month. It might have been two months long of training where every weekend you would come and like go through a presentation of like um, suicide prevention information. And it would go through kind of their model and it would talk about like what their like how we talk to callers and then we would do role play exercises but it went on for like a couple months um and that pretty much prepped us because we would do role play exercises with the other volunteers with the with the coordinators and stuff like that and then we had a full i think it was a one day um, assist training which stands for um applied suicide intervention skills training so that's a workshop that we had to do as well it's a two-day training actually um that we did in conjunction with the two-month as part of the two-month training to start taking calls and then once you start taking calls you actually have a supervisor who's listening in on your calls for the first little bit and then we'll debrief with you after the call talk about it and stuff how it went how things could have gone better and then take on the next one so yeah that's really uh, nice to, that you had that support from the supervisor as you first went in. I think when I think about doing this kind of work, it's like, whoa, this is like um, interacting with people who are going through something really intense. And so, yeah, I just yeah. would want a, a large supervisor presence there so I would feel comfortable with, you know, speaking to, to someone in that position. Yeah, 100%. It's very intimidating at first. I think most people feel like a little bit nervous about doing it. So I think once you have the first couple calls where you have a supervisor listening and then you you can always like IM or message them like during the call and stuff like that to kind of like get some support. And 
So yeah, it's definitely, you're never like alone. You're never doing it hundred percent by yourself. Like you always have people there to help you and guide you. That's good. So as you are um, in this position and this role, what were some of the lessons that you learned during your time? One of the big lessons I learned was that um, I think when you start being able to just, <clears throat> I think active listening is such a hard skill, first of all. So it's a hard skill to hone in on and like develop. So this experience really helped me with that. I think it helped me realize that, you know, when you can put someone, when you can talk to someone on the phone in a situation like a crisis line and you can put yourself in their shoes and you can literally just imagine being on the other side of the line and talk to them and kind of put yourself in their position, um, you are much more likely to develop like a real genuine connection one-on-one with that person when you're because people can sense when you're kind of just listening just to listen or you're not really there or people you know people can kind of sense that even over the phone i mean when you're answering when you're talking to someone on the phone who's experiencing a high level of stress or anxiety or depression or um whatever what have you i think you just have to really be careful about <clears throat> really making sure you hang on every word almost. I mean, and that's helped me a lot with my daily life and even with work and and, re- and school and everything. I've just learned a lot about just taking a step back and like, A, putting myself in the other person's shoes that I'm speaking to or just really, really trying to hang on every word that someone says and try to read between the lines and understand what the context is and what what they're trying to say what what's not being said too so i think that i think that's one big takeaway i've taken away from the crisis line that i just am so grateful for that's beautiful yeah so let's kind of like talk about what your day-to-day like was as a crisis line worker like what um were some of the ways that you supported people when they called in and like what were some of the common issues that people brought up when they called in? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so the typical shift is sort of like a, it's usually, I mean, at least with the organization I was working with, volunteering with, it was sort of like a four-hour shift um, where you would um, go to a disclosed location um, or undisclosed location, like you wouldn't usually you would not be told where the call center is. I think for privacy reasons, like we don't like necessarily like to disclose the address of the the crisis center. And so you get the after they do all the training, you get usually like a four hour um, shift. And it's I did only once a week, so I did a four hour Sunday shift. And basically, once you get there, you pretty much jump right on the calls. So you jump right on. You pick up. You get in the call booth, and you take your first call and. You know, sometimes a call can last from 15 minutes to 30 minutes, um, depending on the level of stress that the person's experiencing or distress. So um, what you initially would do is when you're first taking a call, you would do um, some sort of assessment of safety. So that's not always the case. I'm not sure. I'm just speaking to my experience. But so you would do a general risk assessment of sort of where they're at. Are, Are they likely to commit suicide? Are they are they in the middle of an attempt? Are they just thinking about it? Are they calling on behalf of a friend? Are they calling on behalf of a loved one? Do they want to get more information? Are they following up from a previous call? So you'll get this information beforehand um, because usually this call gets screened and will have at least some general information so the supervisor can pass it to you. 
sometimes that's not always the case, but I remember that would happen sometimes. And then you just start talking to them and um, you do a risk assessment and then you start kind of talk about what they're, what they're experiencing. A lot of the times callers will experience, there's a lot of loneliness, you know, just generally just a lot of loneliness and suicidal ideation. I didn't, sometimes callers would be more um, on the end where they're actually likely to attempt and they're like, have a plan. And so you want to ask questions like, do you have a plan? Have you attempted before? And you want to get more information from them. So I think, Typically, yeah, a call will last about 15 to 30 minutes, depending on the situation. And then, um, so you would talk to the person, sometimes offer a follow-up call. That's not always the case, um, you know. And so, and because of the nature of these lines, like, a lot of the times people will call back again. So people will call, and they've called a couple times, and they call, and they really use the line as a resource for themselves, and that's great. That's what we encourage people to do. So... We do have callers that um, will have like, you know, a story that they've been like talking about for with other previous volunteers or things like that. So, yeah. So then the the shift will last about four hours, and you pretty much go, you know, call after the call, and then sometimes you'll take a break and whatever. But usually you go out call after call, especially you know during that time. And I was volunteering during like 2017, 2018, and even then the calls were pretty high. The numbers, the volumes were pretty high. But I know that the volumes have increased a lot since then a lot since then and that, a huge part of that is just because people's awareness that these these lines exist and you know being able to conveniently dial you know a three-digit number now versus being able or having to call these various local numbers so i think that there's you know i'm sure volunteers today you know who do a typical four-hour shift get a lot more calls than i did when i was doing mine but i did get a lot and it was um yeah so the typical shift kind of goes like that and then after your four hours you know, you're free to go and then you go back to your normal life and then you wait till your next shift the next week, you know, and sometimes people take night shifts Some people do, you know, cause I mean, th- these lines are 24 seven. So people are there, volunteers are there overnight and taking shifts and taking calls. And I, I commend those two volunteers that do that. So, yeah. So that's kind of what the typical experience was like for me. I think there was, um, there was sometimes some paperwork you'd have to do. For instance, if there was like a suspected child abuse situation, there might be other reporting that you would have to do and, and documentation you'd have to follow up with. But um, other than that, you pretty much are talking to people. And then and then you, a lot of these organizations, you'll have to do like a one hour, a one year commitment. Like you'll have to commit upfront to doing a one year, one word with the line. Otherwise, um, um, so I don't know if everyone does that. I'm not sure, but that's what mine did. And so I ended up doing that. And that's why I was there for a year and a half. So, but yeah, that's a typical shift. Like what, if anything, like what were some of the things, cause these are, can be intense calls. Um, so what were some of the things that you did to kind of like debrief yourself after a day of being on the phone line? They can be very difficult conversations, obviously, to experience. I think um, one thing I would do, I, I love music. Like, so when, when I would drive, my, my drive back home, I would just listen to music and I just would kind of like think about the calls that I had. And honestly, I've, I remember the feeling a lot of gratitude actually after my shifts because I would have such positive experiences with my with my callers like I would have like a lot of positive movement in the right direction or we would someone would start a call feeling really really unsafe and feeling like that they're you know at risk of 
you know, harming themselves. And then by the end of the call, they'll feel they'll, they're thanking me for talking to them, you know? So things, I mean, those experiences really stay with you. And so I, I, I remember just, just thinking about those experiences, just driving back home, listening to music and thinking about them. I feel so much gratitude just to be able to be a volunteer and have those, have those calls with people. So that really was a big way of, for me to like, like kind of settle the whole experience in my mind and heart, you know, when I would um, leave. But I think a lot of the times you also lean on your other volunteers and you lean on your supervisors. Cause I, I remember I would talk to the volunteers like during small little breaks or between calls, I would talk to the volunteers and we would all, you know, kind of understand what we're all going through and stuff. And the supervisors are, that I had, that I worked with were incredible. And so they would always give great advice and, and, you know, be able to guide you like that too. So I think it's a sort of up to you what ultimately like how you want to take these calls and these experiences and like sort of integrate them into your, your life as you move forward. Right. So that's kind of what I did. Beautiful. Yeah. I think that's so, I wanted to ask that because I think that's so important when doing this type of support work to take care of yourself as well. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. as someone who was doing this kind of work and, um, coming into contact with people uh, in distress, do you have any advice for people just in everyday life who may come in contact with people in distress and needing some support? Yeah. I mean, generally, I think one thing to always remember is that a lot of the times, this whatever someone's experiencing has nothing to do with you. Right. It's so easy to personalize like someone else's like distress and like whatever they might be going through and be like, oh, this is directed at me taking it personally. So I think just as a preliminary matter, just realizing that everyone's going through something and it's not always directed at you and it really isn't about you. (laughs) So it's kind of nice to just remember that, I think, because as much as we want to even help people through their things and their what, what they're going through, it's ultimately up to them and it's their it's their lives right so but i think generally what we can do is help point people to the right resources and also let them know that they have someone that can listen to them so a lot of it like with our currently in law school i'm part of this nami group this national alliance of mental illness group that we do um we provide resources to students so if i if, if anyone was experiencing distress and was talking to me about it, I would want to first be able to ask them, Hey, have you been able to connect with therapists? Like, have you connected with, um, you know, um, any other resources around you? And so sometimes people have, sometimes people are in the process of looking for those things and whatnot. And if they are, if they're in the process of looking for more support, then I would be able to point them to some local resources and things. There's so many websites these days and so many, so many online resources for people to find, therapists to find low cost um, therapy to find um, even group counseling sessions people don't feel comfortable talking about their feelings as much sometimes group counseling could be a great way to just or group support groups and things like that too because you're a lot of times you're just there to listen and hear other people's sides and other people's stories so I think being able to just like kind of bring up different like opportunities and things for people to take part in to like help themselves is really great like even just mentioning it because ultimately you can only really give someone the option and they have to choose it themselves. So 
I think I think talking about how there's other alternatives to just therapy, just talk therapy is also helpful because sometimes people think, oh, well, I don't want to do therapy, so I'm not going to be able to seek any support. But that's not the case. There's so many other things you can look for and do. Um, so I think that I think first being able to help point people to resources and then also, like I mentioned about being like an empathetic listener. Which is very difficult because sometimes as a, even as a, if a friend is experiencing something, you want to just tell your friend, like, stop, like you're being ridiculous right now. And like, you need to, you need to just, and sometimes that can be helpful. And sometimes it's not. So it's a very fine line. And it goes almost like every relationship is different. <laughs> every relationship is different. You have to know the person you have to know. And your relationship with that person is unique. So I think, but I think at the end of the day, what crosses like, what what covers the whole board is that if you're, if you're a safe space for someone in the sense that you're an empathetic, non-judgmental listener, people will want to be able to open up or people want to open up to you most likely because at the end of the day, people want to be heard. And, and so I, there is a fine line sometimes when you really care about someone, like having to be a space to empathetically, non-judgmentally listen and then also want to be able to actively problem solve with them and help them and find the resources. So that is, I think, sometimes the the line that we all walk with our loved ones and like our friends and stuff. And it's difficult because we're not we're our role isn't necessarily to be a professional support like that, but we can certainly help guide people at least showing them like what other resources are available. So I think um, a lot of the times too, like these, these helplines are also for people who need to help someone else so like the crisis line for instance it's a a wonderful resource if you are experiencing if you have a friendship or if you have if you have like a friend in your life that is experiencing mental health a mental health crisis and you want to know how to help them you can call the crisis line yourself and ask them you know hey i like this person's been posting these things on facebook and they've been texting me like cryptic messages and things like that like i don't know what to say and a lot of times these volunteers can help you figure out like okay how can we plan um what our next steps are to to support this individual and you because that can be very distressing just trying to help someone else who's undergoing a mental health crisis and people tend to forget about that that the caregivers and the friends in your life like they're experiencing a lot of stress too so i think um utilizing these helplines even the nami helpline is a great helpline as well which um and, and volunteers can help you figure out um how to best support an individual that you love so those are my recommendations. I think it's going to, it's always like, it's very gray. There's no black and white answer to any of this. Right. So that's why I think it gets, it can be very tricky, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that you mentioned like support people can reach out to the helpline too. Cause that's such a yeah. great resource. Yeah. I, and I know as support people, we can sometimes feel so helpless. So knowing that that resource is there is really great. To wrap up, uh, I have a signature question that I ask all my guests. Um, And this season, it's about putting an emphasis on the importance of self-care. So my question for you is, what is one thing you do each day to maintain mental wellness? Well, there's a couple of things. So I like to burn sage. So I have this like white sage that I burn um, like a total hippie in my apartment, but I do, I do burn it. I like to burn it every day. Like it's sort of as a ritual thing. So I think a lot of the times with these spiritual practices or these self-care practices, they have to be consistent, like whatever it is, like just do it consistently. Right. So that's what I try to do with the sage. I try to burn it every day. Um, and so that's one thing. 
The second thing I do is also music. I mean, I mentioned before I love music. So I like, I love to make playlists and I, and so that's actually one of my big <laughs> mental health, like self-care things is making a new playlist and like finding new music. I love finding new music and like new electronic music and things like that. New artists I haven't listened to and making playlists for friends and stuff. So that's really makes me happy. Um, and then also finally, I, I'm not as, of course, I'm a total hypocrite, but I'm not as consistent with this as I should be. But I do um, a gratitude journal. I love, I have a gratitude journal I write in and I don't do it every day. I should be, but I try to write in it every night and I write three things for the day I'm grateful for. Um, so that I got from Oprah. So I try to do that. But again, I'm not as consistent with that. But I, you know, as long as you can do one thing every day, I think that's pretty good. So I got the sage thing down. I feel good about that. Yeah, I was going to say three things is is big for self-care every day. So <laughs> that's great. Thank you for sharing. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I learned so much, so I'm sure other people will learn something too. And um, I'm just glad I got to sit down and, and talk with you about your experience. So thank you for being so open to sharing. Thank you so much, Jade. It was great meeting you and talking to you. And you know, I encourage anyone who's even thinking about volunteering in a crisis line to look into it more. And if you have that sense of like, this might be a really great experience for me and you're drawn to it, you know, I think I would encourage anyone to just explore that because I took away from the whole experience, like s- such an enriched um, sort of inner sense of, I don't know, my relationship with people and, and, just how I interact with people moving forward. So I definitely would recommend anyone who's interested in doing it to, to look into it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I was so excited to hear about the 988 number and I was thrilled to be able to have a conversation about it for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with Phoebe or Dylan, their contact info will be in the description of this episode. As always, if you'd like to follow the Students of Mind team, all of our links are in the description as well. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review for the show. Reviews help me know if episodes are landing for you and help get the show into more ears. It also gives listeners an idea of what to expect from the show. You can leave a review by scrolling to the bottom of the podcast show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or by using an app like Podchaser. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.